Good morning. I'm glad you're here to worship with us at Rivermont today, and I invite you to turn in your Bible to Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to be studying together verses 7 to 13 of Ephesians 4 today as we ordain and install officers here at Rivermont. This day of ordination and installation has me thinking a great deal about how we work together as God's people to bless the world. What does it look like when the church is being led and when we're functioning as God calls us to be? That question is on my mind and on my heart and in my prayers as I trust it's on yours as we begin a new year and as well as begin a new year of ministry in our new facility here at Rivermont. What might it look like for us to serve and bless? Paul gives us a picture of what that looks like from Ephesians chapter 4. Let's look there, Ephesians 4, 7 to 13. Hear God's word. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also descended to the lower regions, the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. We're building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Let's pray together. We ask, Father, that by your Spirit you would open our eyes and open our hearts to the wonderful things you have for us today. May we see the Lord Jesus in these words. May we see the Lord Jesus live alive and at work within our own hearts and lives here in the church. Teach us, we pray, O Spirit, in Jesus' name. Amen. Countercultural church. A church that is countercultural is filled with countercultural lifestyles. What, is, what does that bring to your heart and bring to your mind when I say those words? Does it make you think of something shocking? Something that is quite different in some sense, going against the stream? Countercultural. We can watch the Discovery Channel and see salmon swimming up rapids, jumping against the rushing water, counter the flow. It's a bit how the Apostle Paul describes for us the church's mission as countercultural. The way we as God's people live and operate in ways that are different or counter to the way that the culture around us operates so often. How so? Well, instead of living to further self, instead of the survival of the fittest, Paul challenges us to live for one another with the full intent of and and pursuit of pouring out our lives and all of our gifts that we've been given, not for self, but for the building up of other people, for the building up of his body, the church. That's why he gave us gifts. We see in verse 7 and down in verse 11 that grace was given and gifts were given. As Jesus ascended in victory, it says he led captives and offers gifts of victory to his people. Those verses are notoriously complicated to try to understand and interpret, but they are a reference to Psalm 68, which Paul quotes here. And it seems what he's wanting us to understand is that in taking captive, Jesus in his victory on the cross and victory over sin and death has actually taken us captive. 
We were His former enemies. We were the ones who rebelled against Him. And by His victory on the cross and His resurrection, He's taken you and me captives. And then He in turn gives us gifts and deploys us back to build up His people, the church. The Lord Jesus has taken enemies and made us into His family, made us into friends, and He gives us His gifts, His ministry abilities, and sends us back into the body that we might bless and and have people see the ministry and life of Jesus through us. It's not only the super spiritual who are gifted, but Paul says in verse 7, each of us are gifted and each of us are sent to minister in His name. All that to say... Paul is telling us that we, God's enemies, have been captured. We've been captivated by His grace and His love. And we've been given His ministry abilities, Christ's gifts. Christ's ministry abilities are distributed to you and to me. And we are tasked to go and serve people in His name through His gifts. These spiritual gifts that we have are Jesus' gifts to be used for Jesus' people. And friends, that is a countercultural way to live. To steward the gifts that we've been given in order to bless the people around us. And yet that's exactly what He calls us to do. Let's ask some questions of this text and seek the way that the Lord wants to shape us as a church in the coming year. Well, what has He given precisely to us as the church? He's given us spiritual gifts, and we see the list so often in Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12 and 1 Peter 4. But we also see a list here in Ephesians 4, verse 11. We're going to look at that list a little bit this morning. And the list starts out with the apostles and the prophets, the foundation, as Paul calls it earlier in the book, in Ephesians 2.20. The apostles and the prophets, he said, are the foundation of the church with Christ himself as the chief cornerstone. The Lord has provided for us that foundation. Now, as we've watched our new building go up, perhaps you notice one of the very first things that the workmen did was to lay the foundation. And you also know that both for the building here in your own home, if the foundation is off square, if it's messed up in some way, the whole building is in danger. But the Lord Jesus has provided for you and for me, His church, a solid foundation of the ministry of the apostles and the prophets. What exactly were apostles? Well, that word is used a couple of different ways in the Scriptures. It's used for an ambassador or someone who's sent to speak in someone else's name. But there's also a more technical sense of how apostle is used. And I think that's how it is being used in this verse. An apostle was one of the twelve the authoritative messengers that had Jesus' own message, Jesus' will, Jesus' gospel, and they go out and speak with His authority in His name. We see how these apostles were chosen in Acts chapter 1. After Judas betrayed Jesus and forfeited his own life, there was a threefold test that was used to, re- to find the one who would replace Judas. The tests were these. Someone had to minister directly with Jesus. They had to be a witness of the resurrected Jesus. And they had to receive a commission from Jesus. Now, as we think about those criteria, we realize that no one of us can meet those criteria of being an apostle today. That gift is no longer operative among His people. But we still have the witness and the testimony of the apostles in the Scriptures. 
The Bible is our foundation. And that's the way that the apostles' gifts and their ministry continue to benefit you and me today. That spiritual gift of apostle continues to bless us through the written Word of God. He's given us apostles, but He's also given us prophets, Paul says in verse 11. You may know that a prophet was an authoritative spokesman for God. He, he operated as a mouthpiece to speak God's very word to his people. We have to ask the question, do we have prophets like that anymore in the church? Well, the first thing we have to say in answer to that question is that is a much discussed and much debated question among God's people. And there are good people, Bible-believing Christians on both sides of how we answer that question. We have to leave room for the fact that God is able to do whatever He wants to do, right? God is able to raise up a witness where there is no witness to His Son anywhere in the world, however He would like to do it. But in order to oversimplify a really complex question, let's answer it like this. Do we have prophets like that? anymore who authoritatively speak as the mouthpiece of God? Well, the Bible says not exactly. Not exactly as one who would give new revelation about God and His plan in this world. Why would I say that? Well, if you turn over to the book of Hebrews, chapter 1, here verses 1 and 2. Hebrews 1, verses 1 and 2. It says this, In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets, at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, and through whom He made the universe. The writer tells us there that prophets were given to reveal God to His people, and the Bible here tells us that Christ is the full and final revelation of God. We don't have prophets to give new information, new revelation about God because the foundation has already been laid. The Bible is already written. The cornerstone has been laid and the apostles and the prophets have testified. They've given all the revelation that you and I need for life and godliness. We also read from the Apostle Paul. We don't have prophets in the same way anymore. But is there any remnant of that gift or a similar kind of gift today? I think the answer is yes. The Puritans call the ordained teachers of the church prophets. And by that they meant that when one faithfully communicated God's Word to someone else, the written Word of God, as they taught it and preached it and proclaimed it, that was prophecy. That was delivering God's Word to His people. Preaching that explains and communicates the will and the ways of God. The prophets, the Puritans, called prophecy. And I think we could do the same. But hear me say this very clearly. If someone comes to you and says, God revealed something to me that I'm supposed to communicate to you, and you are to obey it as God's Word, don't take it as an authoritative revelation from God. The Bible says that's not how he speaks anymore. You can take advice as advice and you can compare it with the scriptures. You can hear perhaps what someone says to you as a helpful implication of God's word. But always compare it against the scriptures. Because the foundation has been laid. The scriptures have been written. The apostles and the prophets have spoken. And the cornerstone has been laid. The Bible is our authority. 
And frankly, that goes for what you hear from this pulpit as well. I have no doubt that all of our elders would agree that we have been called to teach and preach and proclaim to you, prophesy to you as the prophets, as the Puritans used it. And our authority rests on what the Bible says. When we are faithful to teach you and lead you according to what the Scriptures say, then we speak with authority. Leaders are accountable to the Word of God just as you are. And that foundation has been laid on the apostles and the prophets. So friends, don't let anyone bind your conscience on something that the Scriptures haven't communicated. Don't let someone come to you and say, God told me to tell you this and you have to obey it. Because it's God's Word. Don't hear that as a binding of your conscience. Compare what they say against the Scriptures. Because the Scriptures are the Lord of our lives. The Scriptures bind our conscience alone. God Himself has built this foundation of His Word upon which the church stands. And we as His temple, the place in which He dwells, are built, as Brett mentioned a moment ago, brick upon brick. And yet the foundation bears witness to Jesus. What else is he given besides a foundation? If we continue on in verse 11, we see that the Lord has given us continued carpenters in this great construction project of building his temple, building his body. He speaks of evangelists and shepherd teachers. Those are those who are equipped by God to lead the continuing construction crews. You, the congregation, as the crew. An evangelist is someone who is especially gifted to communicate the gospel in a compelling way, in a relevant way for our culture to understand. Now, all of us have a responsibility for evangelism. All of us have a responsibility and a privilege to not only share our faith, but live out the gospel, to give away what we've been given by the Lord. But some of us are especially gifted, love it, and are particularly skilled at the work of evangelism. We're grateful that the Lord has supplied His church with evangelists, that the gospel may spread in our community, in our neighborhoods, in the world. He's also given here the gift of shepherd and teacher. And probably this is intended to be one gift, a hyphenated, kind of a shepherd teacher or pastor teacher. These are people who communicate and expound upon the Word of God for the house to be built up, the ones who exhort the body. The shepherd teachers are elders who encourage and build up the flock. If you look around, you see those gifts all over the place. We're going to ordain four new elders, four new shepherd teachers today. And yet their ministry rests upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets as we labor for the building up of the church. But the question comes to us from this text, why? Why did God give these gifts of teaching and leading and encouraging the flock? What's the purpose of God giving spiritual gifts to His body. Well, look again at verses 12 and 13 of our text. These gifts were given, verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ first purpose we see here in verse 12 of the spiritual gifts are to prepare God's people, to equip. These gifts are given for a preparatory function. It's easy to see that in some jobs that their main work is equipping and preparing other people to do work. It seems to me that 
a stay-at-home mom is kind of like that. I recently found an article from Reuters News that tried to put an economic valuation on what stay-at-home moms do. Wanted to calculate what is the value to a family of a mom to stay at home. Now, I know not all mothers stay at home, but the article communicated this. And so let's hear what they had to say about how a mother communicate, how a mother contributes to her family if she stays home. Listed an occupation blend of about 10 different occupations a stay-at-home mom has. I've edited the list. I'm just going to share a few of you, a few of them with you. A mom is a cook. She's a daycare manager. She's a laundry machine operator. She's a van driver. She's a facilities manager. She's a computer operator. She serves as the chief operations officer of the family. And finally, every stay-at-home mom must be a psychologist. (laughs) Mom puts in a long work week. She has a regular 40-hour week at base pay and then about 52 hours of overtime, this article suggested. (laughs) She works 92 hours every week and this article calculated that economic contribution to a family of a stay-at-home mom at about between one hundred and forty and one hundred and fifty thousand dollars for a family. I think mom deserves a raise. What do you think? Well, what does the stay-at-home mom do? She doesn't go out and do all of those jobs, but she does this, this work inside the home so that the rest of the family is equipped to perform their callings and their jobs. She's a hub of labor enabling. A stay-at-home mom's labor is to facilitate the learning of the kids, to provide shelter for the family, to support her husband, support the whole family's ministry. The mother labors all right, but her labor is an equipping sort of labor. That's very similar to how Paul describes the job of shepherd teachers, of elders in the church. Elders don't go out and do all of the ministry themselves, but they rather are equippers. They are preparers for the whole flock to do the ministry that God has gifted the whole flock to do. Not only those who are professional in it, but each of us have been given gifts. And elders' responsibilities are to prepare God's people, that's you, for the works of service. Verse 12 says that pastors and elders and deacons are called to prepare you, the saints, to do the work of ministry. We're to come alongside God's people to help them find how God has gifted you to serve in His body and then equip you to do it. Our job is to teach you and help you to do the ministry of the church, to build up God's body by your service. You see, being a part of a church is not about coming to a building on Sunday morning and hearing a preacher talk. Being part of a church is not about consuming religious goods and services. Being part of a church is about wholeheartedly giving of yourself to a body, to give your gifts to a body. And in so you're building up a people, for the church is a people among whom God is at work. This is God's body, God's church, and He has brought you here to do His work among this people. What an incredible privilege we've been given for every one of us To be called into ministry. How is that a countercultural lifestyle? Well, I'd suggest to you it's countercultural in this way. The church is the place where every single member is valued equally. Where those who are perceived to have the more flashy gifts are no more important than those who have behind the scenes gifts. 
The church is the place where everybody loses out if every member isn't using their gift to bless the body. You see, when the church loses its vision of doing the church's ministry, we all lose. When the ministry is professionalized and the pastor takes over the church and the pastor is the one who's supposed to do all the ministry, the pastor is the one who's supposed to do all the visitation and the ministry of hospitality. When that happens, the whole church loses because Jesus has gifted you with some of those gifts to build up His body. Every one of you have been gifted by Jesus to serve Jesus in His body. And we need you to use your gifts. We need mercy people to make this place more merciful. We need hospitality folks to make us a more hospitable family. We need administratively gifted people to help us order all that we do. We need compassionately gifted people to make us more into a compassionate body. We need exhorters to draw us in toward holiness. Every one of you have been given gifts so that the full ministry of Jesus is seen and is alive here in this place. The distinction in the church is one of gifts in the body. It's not a matter of ministry versus non-ministry. We all have been called into ministry. We all have been called to use our gifts for the glory of the Lord Jesus. And if you aren't using yours, we as a congregation are less complete. The question for you and for me is when someone looks at Rivermont... Can they see Jesus at work in His various and diverse ways among you, His people? If they can't, it could be that you or someone sitting near you is holding out. But we need you to use your gifts. We need everyone to use your gifts. Are you? If you don't know what your spiritual gift is, you don't know what kind of ministry the Lord is calling you into here at Rivermont, I would encourage you to talk to Pastor Brett. We have some assessment tools that can help you uh, figure out how uniquely God has gifted you and He can also plug you into a particular ministry to use your gifts. So I ask you again, are you willing to use your gifts? Are you willing to be used as a tool in the hand of the Lord that the name of Jesus and the presence of Jesus can clearly be seen among this body? Every one of us have been gifted and called for the building up of his body. But Paul continues by telling us we're being built up into a very specific direction. Indeed, again, it's a countercultural direction. How so? He tells us again in verse 13 that we are called into unity, unity and maturity. And yet, don't we realize that the, the battle cry of our culture is unity, but around something different altogether? The battle cry of our culture is unity around anything goes. One person has commented that the civil religion of our society is a religion of whatever. Whatever's good for you, whatever's good for me, it doesn't matter. The culture holds unity as a value, but often it's unity to the exclusion of what is true. But that's not the way Paul calls us to be united. Look again in verse 13. We are to be united in the faith and in knowledge of the Son of God. And the way Paul uses that language, that unity in the faith, speaks of the content of the Christian faith, the doctrine of the Christian faith, the truth unites us, he says. 
But it's not only naked truth that we're united around. We're also united around knowledge of the Son of God here. We are called to know the truth, yes, but that knowledge of the Son of God speaks of something more personal, something more experiential. We are called to know the truth, and we're called to experience that truth alive within us as a church. He's calling us to a personal knowledge, a personal laying hold of the gospel of Jesus. He's calling us to consciously live in the light of the forgiveness and righteousness of God given to you and me by trusting in the fact that Jesus was sacrificed on the cross for us. He lived a perfect life for us, receiving our judgment upon Himself, giving His life in exchange for ours. And we are called to unity around an experience of that saving work of Jesus. Now, why would Paul say that here? When he's talking about using spiritual gifts, building together a body, why would he call us to focus on being united around an experiential understanding of the gospel? Well, it's very clear. As we labor together, one of the chief things that we're called to labor toward is the demonstration of the cross for one another. And we have all kinds of opportunities for it because we're all sinners here. Every one of us are sinners and we live together as sinful people and we sin against one another as church members all the time. But seeking unity in that knowledge of the Son of God calls us to live with one another in an environment of forgiveness, an environment of pointing one another to the cross of the Lord Jesus. Paul is saying our doctrine, our truth is lived out in the ways that we live with one another. The truth of the cross has to show up in the way that we live with one another, the way we experience one another in relationship. That's what he's calling us to. Not only knowing about the cross of Christ in our heads, but knowing the cross of Christ in the way we relate to one another. As a forgiven people who forgive. As a restored people who seek to restore. As a people who are being renewed by the Lord Jesus, seeking renewal in one another's lives. Our doctrine is to be lived out in the ways we relate one to another. As Brett mentioned a moment ago, Jesus is building His house by stacking you and me brick upon top of brick to hold the temple of the Lord Jesus. We could even go so far as to say as Jesus builds His house, He's stacking broken brick on top of broken brick. And yet the building is held together by the power of the love of Christ. We live together. We are united around that experiential, personal knowledge of the Son of God who forgives us, who heals our wounds, especially when we wound one another. How do we react when a brother or sister sins against us? Do we react with anger or jealousy or defensiveness? Do we even attack back? Do we seek to protect ourselves and protect our reputation from that person? It's the way we usually live. Paul calls us to the countercultural lifestyle. Embracing a brother or sister who sins against us and we deal with them in forgiveness and in restoration in the ways that the Son of God has dealt with us through forgiveness and restoration. It's only living in light of that gospel that we can risk opening our hearts up again and again to someone who sinned against us 
and still embrace them as a brother or sister. It only happens through the gospel, through that experiential knowledge of the Son of God. Can we live together as sinners in the church and live together in humility as sinners in the church? We can if our unity is based upon that personal experiential knowledge of what the Son of God has done for us in His cross and His resurrection. Same is true in our families. Do we live with the expectation of perfection from one another in our families? Or are we willing to lay hold of the blood of Christ for those sins of those who are closest to us? Are you willing to take the risk of not having all of your expectations met by those in your family and still extend love to them? You'll only be able to do it and empowered to continue to love when you look upon and meditate upon and focus on the cross of Christ. Friends, we are broken bricks being built up and held together by the love of Jesus. It's only in knowing Christ as our substitute that we will find the strength to stay in those kinds of relationships, to pursue one another, to have the freedom of exposing the darker parts of our hearts and not fear being rejected. It's only in the cross of Christ that we find the strength to live like that. Why has God put you here? Why has He brought you to Rivermont? He's brought you here because this body needs you. We need every one of you. We need the gifts and the talents and the abilities that Jesus has given to every one of you so that this congregation has the privilege of seeing the full representation of Jesus alive and at work here in this place. Will you pour yourself out? Will you spend your life for the glory of Jesus so that every person who walks through this door experiences the life of Christ here in this place through you. Let's commit to ask the Lord to do that in us and through us in this new year. Let's pray together. Father, we are so grateful that you are alive and at work here in this body. We thank you that you have gifted every one of us with the various gifts that we need in order to see Jesus at work here. We pray that as you've brought new people into our fellowship over the last year and you continue to bring new people to our fellowship, would you help us to help them use their gifts, do the ministry that you're calling them to do so that we experience Christ through one another. We pray that our neighborhoods, our workplaces, our families, our nation, and indeed the world would experience Jesus alive in the ways that we love and serve and bless one another and our community. Would you do that in us in this coming year? We pray it all in Christ's name. Amen.